0: Thank you for listening to this recording from Chestnut Hill Baptist Church. Today Pastor David Site preaches from John chapter 16 with a message called, The Spirit's Purpose. We hope you find this message valuable and enriching. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, 16th chapter, verse 7-11. through 11. John 16, 7-11. This is the word of God to us this morning, but I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment, in regard to sin, because men do not believe in me, in regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you cannot see me no longer, and in regard to judgment, because the Prince of this world now stands condemned. May God illuminate our hearts with this truth from his word this morning, thank you. In the beginning of time, in the, the days that are marked by man's innocency in the, in the garden, the days before man fell to sin, he held a special place with God, a communion with God as one friend to another. And Adam and Eve walked together with God in the garden of Eden, And as the Bible says, in the cool of the day, there was a oneness in those days which we simply cannot understand today because of our fallen nature. And then came the fall of man to sin. The oneness became an alienation. The two friends parted as Adam and Eve were banned from the garden. Sightings of God thereafter were mere glimpses, an occasional theophany or an angel or a shadowy presence of uh, of God. And then the time came, however, when God opened the heavens and came down and dwelled with his creation here on earth. And he took upon himself the flesh and the form of man and he walked this life as a common man, but yet filled with all of the sinless divinity that he had for eternity past. People saw him, they touched him, they ate with him. He was their friend and what a glorious privilege to look upon this incarnate God and to talk with him day by day. Now I'm not sure however that ours is not a far more blessed privilege in this day. To be sure, he's indeed vanished out of our, our sight. His face is only sweet speculation to us today. His presence, a, a mere blissful hope. But this, in his spiritual presence, is with us today. His presence, this mere blissful hope, a spiritual presence with us. And the Bible reminds us of Jesus' words when he said, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And this Jesus has been with them as child and as man for just over 30 years when he came to earth. They had heard his words and they were prepared to say, as the Bible reminds us, never did a man speak like this man. And then they'd seen his works and they could testify, no man could do these things except God were with him. And what was the result of of all of that? Well, a little group of fishermen and other humble people had gathered around him and that was all, at least it, it appeared. Outward appearances gave this impression that his his work was ineffective. His anointed purpose was to revolutionize the spiritual structure of the world, but what an apparently insignificant outcome. How few people it seemed that he had reached. So where was the problem in all of this? Well, it lay in the limitations, I think, of the flesh. All flesh is weak. No man in the flesh has ever attained to total conquest or he ever will with regard to his sin nature. Imperial Caesar, in his day, he died and turned to dust. Alexander the Great, when all was told, he lay dead under his supper table. Napoleon, in lonely, friendless exile, Wore away his life. And so long as Jesus dwelt among his disciples, they were wholly dependent upon his bodily presence. You know, one night we recall in Scripture, while rowing across the Sea of Galilee, a storm fell upon them and they were overwhelmed with fear, you recall. And what a, at that moment was their master's power to them? He was not present with them and they didn't feel or sense his presence, yet he was only three miles away on a hill praying and watching them through the night. And their faith was so visual it reached only to the edge of their boat and no further. And he must therefore disappear out of our sight, for our sake, for the world's sake. Lycurgus, who lived 900 B.C., he prepared a a code of laws for Sparta, and he believed that his personal presence was a hindrance to the just observation of that code that he had created, and so mysteriously he disappeared and was never seen or heard of again. You see, in the same way, to secure the legitimate fruits of the ministry, Christ must go away also, depart from us. But when Christ vanished, he left behind him what the Bible refers to as a counselor. The Holy Spirit was not hemmed in by or any environment of time and and space. The Holy Spirit, this omnipotent, omnipresent power, the work was now to be transferred to the Holy Spirit in Christ's absence, and he was to carry it Onto the restitution of all things, as the Bible says. The followers of Jesus would indeed know him, but no more after the flesh, but now in the Spirit. They would know him far more gloriously and effectively in the power of this Spirit of God. So he went his way, and he bowed his weary shoulders and burdened with the world's sorrows, and he passed through to eternal life. And what then? What is the result of that? And for the season his followers felt that it was all over. You recall that Peter was so distraught that he said, I go a-fishing, meaning in the Greek that I'm permanently going back to what I knew. And the other said, we're going with you also permanently, distraught, discouraged, and then after His resurrection, Christ reappeared and remained among His disciples for 40 days, and it was long enough to convince them that whereas He had died, He was now alive forevermore, long enough to mark out for them the plan of their involvement, and then having emphasized their great commission. Go you into all the world and preach the gospel. He breathed on them, saying, Receive the Holy Spirit. And he passed from their presence into the clouds. The gift of the Holy Spirit thus conferred was only a deposit, just a deposit of what was to come. Ten days passed by. And then while they were praying in an open court, suddenly the sound of a rushing mighty wind was heard as the Bible describes it, the flames parting into tongues of fire that sat upon each of them and began to speak in these foreign languages or in tongues as it's referred to. This advent of the Holy Spirit was made evident by the conversion of 3,000 in a single day. Through the Spirit, the Father and the Son are working for the regeneration of the world. You see, Christ promised after he had gone to the Father that his disciples being energized with the Spirit would perform greater works than his own. The twelve who had been unable to cast out an unclean spirit unless the Lord stood by them and who struck with fear had forsaken him in the moments of his agony on the cross, now went everywhere with holy zeal and courage, proclaiming the gospel. Souls were converted by tens of thousands. And we're living in this dispensation of the spirit, dispensation that we call the church age. It's the golden age to us of privilege and, and opportunity. Anyone who desires may have a part in it, and the measure of power is by means of of willingness. The harvest is plentiful, as we're reminded in Scripture. The fields are ripe unto harvest, but the vast multitudes care nothing for this power, the power that we have in the Holy Spirit, and they're bridled to the earth. They have low conceptions of spiritual truth. The worldly can see money, they can see mansions and fame, but they're blind to the welfare of the world, to eternity and to God. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned, we know. Until our misapprehensions of great truths are corrected, we shall always prefer this transient and material success to those eternal achievements of men baptized from on high and made partners in this transcendent work of the Spirit of God. So what are the functions of the Holy Spirit? Why does the Holy Spirit reside within us who claim Christ as our Savior? Well, there are three, and our scripture this morning mentions it to us, but I'm going to repeat them and look into them in a little more detail. When the Holy Spirit came, He came to convict the world in respect to sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. Sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. And first of all, we'll take them one at a time, first of all, sin. The Bible says, because they believe not on me. And why? Because of sin. How little we know about the the true character of sin. We see its outward existence in, in wars, and in hatred, and in greed, and cruelty to each other. The news is full of this outworkings of sin. But these are only the symptoms of sin. These are not sin, but they are the eruptions of sin. And when we try to cure them with prisons, and laws, and human rights policies, we're merely doctoring the symptoms, the illness itself lies deeper down within our spirits. So what is sin? It is enmity against God. Sin is enmity against God. Its greatest manifestation is not theft or adultery or murder, but the rejection of God's Son. The Bible says this is the condemnation, that men love darkness better than what? Light. You see, the bottom line is that they will not have Christ to rule over them. That's the unpardonable sin that the the Bible speaks about. The work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin by showing Christ rejected. And on the day of Pentecost, when Peter with the flickering flame of the Spirit upon his forehead, stood up in the midst to preach the gospel, he told that multitude of the dreadful thing that they had done. You have taken Jesus and with wicked hands have crucified him, he said. And they were made to see their hands red with the Messiah's blood. And then stricken with this sudden anguish, the Bible tells us that they cried out, What shall we do? And no one knows the character of sin until he has felt himself guilty of the greatest tragedy of all time. It was I that shed that sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. My sin. To reject Christ in the clear light of this gospel age is to crucify him anew. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to lay his hand on our blind eyes that this awful truth may flash upon our eyes and our spirit. But the second that our scripture this morning reminds us of, he convicts the world of righteousness. He convicts the world of righteousness. And what is righteousness? And here again, our apprehension is kind of perverted. The nearest approach to Righteousness, with which the natural heart is familiar, is morality. Morality, and this is what Isaiah was speaking about when he said, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. You take the best man you ever knew and uncover his deepest heart, and there you'll find it as a nest of unsuspecting things. Our personal merit is as rags tattered, torn, mildewed, moth-eaten, defiled, a-falling-away in rotted shreds. Another form of righteousness with which we are acquainted is this outward compliance with ceremonial law, the thing the Bible speaks about when it says there is a form of godliness, but we deny its power. The poet Shelley says that his father used to say, at church on Sunday to attend, will serve to keep the world your friend. Now, that may be true in this, but it surely cannot commend us to a, a holy God. He tells us that many will knock at his gate crying, Lord, Lord, but shall not be able to enter in. And the Spirit corrects these false and superficial views of righteousness by pointing to the glorified Christ. He has ascended up on high to give gifts to mankind, and his best gift to us is righteousness. He administers justification in the pardon of sin from his exalted throne on high, and he imputes his own merit also to, to that we might receive it. Imputed to us, meaning we don't naturally have it. He gives us to it. Imputed so that we are willing to receive it. That's the real righteousness, which is the righteousness of the saints. But there's a third thing that our scripture this morning reminds us of, and that is he, repro- he reproves the world of judgment, judgment. The Bible says, because the prince of this world is judged. The prince of this world, he says, is judged. Not will be judged, but is judged. The judgment is going on now. And we are in the midst of that great controversy light and darkness will meet at Armageddon. It's a mistake to suppose that all judgment is waiting for the blast of the trumpet in that day referred to in scripture. The trumpet blast will mark the close of earthly judgment and the consummation of all things. And at that time when the 70 disciples returned to Jesus, you recall in scripture, reporting that they had been able to heal diseases and to to do all manner of wonderful works in his name. He said to his disciples, as if this working of wonders were but a mere episode in the great struggle of life, as if all along he had known the end from the beginning, he said, I saw Satan fall from heaven. It set out upon a work of universal conquest. And all the gates of hell could not prevail against him. The victory was sure. He already heard the rattling of the chains of the dragon as he was hurled into that great abyss. The history of these 21 centuries is a continuous story of the overthrow of evil. The world was never advanced in truth and righteousness as far as it is today. It may not seem that way, but God is still in control and advancing his righteousness even to this day. And if we would only direct our eyes like those of Christ, that we might see how truth ever has the upper hand, how Satan falls from heaven. The work of the Holy Spirit makes us optimists It opens our eyes of the believers to see the mountains full of horses and and chariots like Elijah's servant, you remember. It dispels doubt. It attunes our hearts to God. And so the three great truths in the providence of spiritual truth, sin, righteousness, and judgment, are opened up to us by the work of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. Without his aid, we cannot understand them. And so we say, come, Holy Spirit, come. Come as light to illuminate our dull understanding. Come as the morning dew to refresh our wearied energies and to give us hopeful and joyous views of spiritual truth. Come as the fire and rekindle within us a new zeal for holiness and new devotion to the kingdom of God. And may God bless his own word to us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning as a community of believers, saved by grace, the finished work of your Son on the cross, to redeem us to you his work sufficient in your eyes we come realizing that we are sinners saved only by that grace and we are sinners that are empowered by your holy spirit that we might receive the righteousness of your son jesus christ who came to dwell on high and to sit at your right hand and we come to you this morning knowing that there is a judgment to come and that this world that is still fallen will be judged, that Christ paid the penalty and received our judgment, never to be judged again in all eternity for our sins. But as believers, Father God, we recognize that there is a world of of sinners and people who have no choice because they've not even heard the word Jesus Christ, but to receive the eternal conviction of hell. And so Lord, help us through prayer and actions and our feet because your word tells us blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news. And so help us, Lord, to get our feet moving. Be aware that time is running out. And while we still have breath, let us breathe as you did the Holy Spirit upon those you bring before us. Let us bring that good news and rid this world of its sin. Give it the righteousness of your son and avoid your judgment to come. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. For more information about Chestnut Hill Baptist Church or to subscribe to these audio messages via our podcast, visit our website at chestnuthillbaptist.org. You can also write to us at Chestnut Hill Baptist Church to Bethlehem Pike, Philadelphia, PA, 19118.